Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable to discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. Hello again, everyone, to Explore FI Canada. All three of us are here today, and it's my turn to be interviewed. Today, I will be telling my backstory. So first, I'll say hi to my co-hosts. Good morning to Money Mechanic. Morning, Chrissy. Nice to be here. And hello, Ryan. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm three hours (laughs) later than you guys, so it's the afternoon already here. But I'm doing well. Thank you. Excellent. So I guess I'll just jump right in with my story. So if anyone wants to read my story in more detail and see some old pictures of me as a kid, you can go to my blog and go to my backstory and you can find more details there. So I'll just get started with uh, the very beginning, which is my parents. Um, They're a huge influence on me. And so I think it's important to start there. They were born and raised in Hong Kong, and they immigrated to Canada in the 1960s. And they came with not much more than the money in their pockets. So they were basically starting from zero. But uh, through a lot of hard work and sacrifice and lots of smart money choices, they fulfilled their dream of giving their future children, which is my twin sister, younger brother, and I, a very good middle-class life. And I actually like to say that my parents lived like mustachians before mustachianism ever existed. They were very frugal and they DIY'd a lot of things and they bought reliable, good cars. We didn't get the latest of anything and you know we didn't do a lot of traveling. We traveled mostly locally. So yeah, they were very mustachian in their ways, which I, I think was a good foundation for me. So they made sure we had all of our needs and we had some of our wants, but it was mostly our our needs that were met and they met those very well. We had the most important things, which was a loving family and having a safe home and a neighborhood to grow up in. And we also had our mom at home to raise us, my sister and I, for our first five years. Unfortunately, she did have to go back to work when my brother was born and so My mom decided that was the best decision financially for our family at that time. And so she went back to work full time. And I think throughout my life, I I just felt very lucky to have had the upbringing I had because it has influenced all my money decisions. And I feel like it's set me on the right foot. And we have done well because of following in my parents' footsteps. That's wonderful to hear. I'm so glad because... In my own story, I reflected on how my father had taken me to Loblaws to set up a President's Choice financial account. And that's only just the tip of the iceberg. The man was smart enough to know that I should be doing all my banking online, that there are other ways to save money. And so parents have just such a huge impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that leads me into the next topic I'd like to discuss about my upbringing is that my parents never actually taught us about money explicitly. We just learned through osmosis. Uh, And it wasn't even like we consciously observed them. It was just money was woven into all our daily lives and our conversations. And it was just, it was never taboo. It was just something that it just was, you know, if we went to the grocery store, we saw how our mom, you know, would, would shop the sale items or, you know, even buying our clothes, she would make sure she looked at the clearance racks first, those kinds of things. 
And then she also worked at one of the big five banks in Canada. And so as she progressed in her career, she would learn more and more about investing and different accounts and how to save. And she would share that knowledge with us as we were growing up. So it was just always part of my life, just having that financial knowledge. And she was actually the one who gave me my first personal finance book, which was The Wealthy Barber. And I still love it to this day. And I will get my kids to read it pretty soon because they're actually, I think, old enough to take in that content and really understand it. But uh, because of that book, I learned how to pay myself first. And I started doing that as soon as I started earning money through summer jobs. And I like that you worked at Playland. Playland was the best when we were kids. <laughs> yes. So fun going there. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone like- does, yeah, Playland is uh, an amusement park in Vancouver. And it's only really open in the summer because their weather is so horrible. But yeah. And you're slinging candy floss. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I still love it. If, if I could have my own, like we, we have, a, we borrowed from a friend a little home uh, candy floss maker, but it's not the same as the one we had at Playland. You know, it's just very... Um, I don't know. I, I would say it's almost therapeutic the way that you make the candy floss because you just roll the stick <laughs> around and around. It it was it was a really fun job. So I love that. Well, it's interesting to hear you read The Wealthy Barber because I, I remember that book being present when, and when you hear my story, but I just didn't pick it up and read it. So good for you for doing that. Yeah, it's it's actually a very readable book. It's very short. It's fun to read because it's a story. And, and he, you know, Dave Chilton is, is actually a very humorous writer. So it, it was an entertaining read. So even if you haven't read it yet and you're far along your, your fire journey, I still think it's worth reading just because it's entertaining. And, you know, it's worth knowing that book just so you can share it with others who are in the beginning stages of their financial journey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I... That leads me into my college years. I worked through a few summers in high school, and I continued on with my second part-time job, which was uh, to work at Starbucks as a barista. So that continued on into my college years, which was art school. And that was also where I met my husband. And we were classmates in a three-year graphic design and illustration program. And at the time when we met, he was still dating someone, but their relationship was on the rocks. And so when that ended, we started to get to know each other and started dating. And I was really happy. We were both really happy to find we were so similar, particularly with our upbringing. His parents are also from Hong Kong. His dad is actually of Macanese descent, uh, but he was born and raised in Hong Kong, as was his mom. So we had very similar upbringings because of that. Our parents were are very close in age. They ate the same food, went to the same places in Hong Kong. So, you know, we, we had a lot of that in common. But his parents also raised him financially very similarly because they also started off their lives as a couple in Canada with very little. They came with their parents from Hong Kong, but when they set off on their own, they started from zero and they also had to work really hard and sacrifice and make smart money decisions to uh, give my husband and his brother the middle-class life that they wanted for them. And so my husband and I were always, we've always been on the same page as far as our finances. So we were savers from the start. And uh, in our school, we would notice how most of our classmates would go down to the cafeteria every single day for every snack break, every lunch they would buy from the cafeteria, which is not cheap. It really adds up. And 
a lot of our classmates, especially the ones who went to the cafeteria, tended to be on student loans. And it seemed like most of them treated the loan money like free money. You know, they, they didn't really think about the consequences of spending so much of it. And one of them even said to us, you know, well, I was taught to die in debt and that's what I'll do. So, you know, that, that was shocking for us. But luckily, my husband and I were, were aligned and we stayed on the path that led us to where we are today, which is wonderful. And I think that's a huge FI hack to meet the right spouse and meet someone who's aligned with you financially. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've, I've also been lucky with my spouse and not having to have the confrontation or disagreement or having worse is maybe trying to convince somebody to do it your way, which we know that you can't make somebody else change. They have to want to make their own change. So yeah, having that sort of aligned values from the beginning is, uh, is so understated, I think. Do you find that you both have a similar risk profile as when it comes to your investments nowadays? Sorry, just jumping ahead, just a sort of a side question. No, that's a good question. My husband, he he's just quite rational about it. He's very hands-off, and I think that's part of what helps him just go with the flow as far as my aggressive tendencies <laughs> as far as investing. It takes very little convincing for him. You know, he of course, naturally, it's like, well, you want to leverage our house? Isn't that dangerous? Because that was just what we were always taught, right? Our, our parents drilled it into us that debt is terrible. You'd never take on debt, especially not on your home, because you could lose your home and it's terrible. So he came with that mindset when I first introduced the concept of uh, the Smith maneuver or leverage investing to him. But it didn't take much for me to educate him and teach him that, you know, it's not it's a calculated risk and you know this is how we are mitigating the risk and you know when you look at it this way it's not necessarily that risky like we have so many backups and and we have a very solid plan in place for how we're going to carry this out and so it takes the risk level down quite a bit and so he is on board and i i think if he was as as interested in finances as i was that he would be aligned with me that way as well Right. So you, you've had a, a rational discussion and you can both come up with a solution that works for both of you. So yeah, that's important. Mm -hmm. right. mm, no, I was just going to say, must be nice. Must be nice to have a spouse <laughs> that wants to do the Smith maneuver. <laughs> My wife doesn't listen to our podcast, well, so I can be as mean as I want. <laughs> well, your spouse also didn't buy a third car, but <laughs> that, that's a whole other conversation. As you have said, Ryan, a marriage is being part of a team and you have to be on the same page when you make decisions like this. And you may not always agree, but you know, I think each of you comes to the table with your wants and your desires and what you value. And there's just because we don't agree doesn't mean it's not important. And I think that's one thing that's helped to keep the peace in our relationship financially that, you know, we understand that each of us has different values and that's okay. We don't have to agree, but we can go along with it and it, it's fine. It works out. So I'll continue on with my story. And the next part is our careers. So we, as I said, we were in a three-year program and when it finished, my husband and I were both really fortunate to have found uh, graphic design jobs pretty much right away. We, started working and started saving our money pretty much right from the start. We, we really didn't have a lot we wanted or needed to spend on. We still lived at home. Thank you, parents. <laughs> they were happy to let us live at home. And uh, 
we were pretty frugal with the entertainment that we enjoyed. We like watching movies. It didn't cost much to rent a video from Blockbuster and we would uh, split it with my sister and her boyfriend at the time. We'd go together and we'd rent one movie, you know, split four ways. That's that's not very expensive. And we like things like rollerblading at the beach or just going for a walk somewhere nice. So it, it really wasn't expensive to live the way that we did. So we were able to sock away pretty much all of our earned income at that time, which was great. It helped our nest egg grow really quickly. But there wasn't really a goal at that point. So all we knew to do was to just save it, save it, save it. But less than a year into our careers, my husband started feeling the itch to move out. He's a little bit older than me. He's two and a half years older than me. So he was getting into his mid-20s and said, you know what? I don't want to live at home anymore. I'm ready to fly the nest and (laughs) go out on my own. And we talked about it. And even though I was younger and in my early 20s, I wasn't fully ready, but I thought it was a a good move for us to move out together at that point and try out our our own independence. Uh, And when we told our parents, they they're Asian. So (laughs) naturally, they convinced us to look at buying a house instead of renting. And I know Millennial Revolution has talked about this. Um, Christy has said that, you know, her parents basically disowned her when they found out that she didn't want to buy a house. And it is is culturally a very powerful belief in Asian cultures that buying property is, is very important. It's a sign of success and that you're doing well. So that's the way our parents guided us. And so we did. We looked into purchasing a house. And luckily for us at the time, it was a buyer's market. It was around the year 2000. The market had been slow for a while. So, it, you know, there was a lot to pick from. And uh, we decided on a price point that was uh, just stretching a little bit, but not ridiculously. And uh, we start looking at houses and started building up a down payment. And uh, that was a lot of work. <laughs> it took a lot of hard saving. We put away every penny. But we also were lucky in that we had a bit of a head start because our parents, even though they're not wealthy and they did not give us large sums of money growing up, they would take all of our birthday money, all Chinese New Year's money, and any government grants that they didn't need to use for uh, the family's living costs. They would sock it away in our own savings accounts and just build it up. And over the years and through our childhood and teenage years and into young adulthood, they just kept putting that money away for us. And we're just lucky that both our parents did that for us, but ended up being that it was enough that it was about a third of our down payment, which was really helpful. And so I've seen the power of that, the power of saving little bits of money for many, many years. And so we're doing the same for our kids now, and they're fully on board. They they don't want much or need much. And so we'll give them some of their birthday money to spend, but most of it gets saved away. And some of it is given away to the charity of their choice. And instead of getting gadgets and video games, um, they are growing little nest eggs, which is fantastic. Uh, you mentioned all, all the savings going on. As a young adult, were you involved in any kind of other investing or was it just going into a bank savings account at that time? Yeah, that's a good question because um, I think it, I made it sound like we only saved in cash. But in fact, my, as I said, my mom was a banker. And so she made sure we were set up with RSPs ASAP <laughs> as soon as we could. And also when the TFSA came out, she made sure we opened up those accounts too. So she was our 
financial planner and advisor in our 20s and even into our early 30s because I did not have the time or desire to deal with any of that. So I would just ask her, what should I do? And I just tell her, show her where my accounts were. She had control of our accounts because uh, she could see behind the scenes all our accounts. So I just told her, put it where it needs to go. (laughs) So she did that for us. And uh, what she did was put it in bank stocks, which is very typical for Canadians to invest in bank stocks because of the dividends. And she also invested in a few blue chip dividend paying stocks. So it's very classic Canadian type of investing. And because she worked at the bank, the mutual funds were, of course, in in the bank mutual funds, which we didn't know better at the time. We didn't realize MERs were high. We, we really had no clue and neither did my mom. But that's what we did. And so um, I would say probably half of our money was invested that way. And then the other half we kept in cash just because we were saving for a down payment. So we had to be careful not to invest it um, because we needed it quickly. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that you had that, uh, the advantage of the inside knowledge, having your mother at the bank there to get you started off on the right path at that age. That's, that's really great. Because I remember back then it was just uh, GICs were kind of the only thing. Yeah, I ever looked at so. Yeah, and I think we would have been the same because it it was just too much for me to even think about investing, and there was no such thing as DIY investing back then. No. At least it wasn't very well known. I, I think it existed, but you know there were very few ETFs. There was very there was pretty much nothing on the internet. So, you know, like I said, we didn't know any better. Uh, so we just did what we thought was best, which was let my mom handle it. Yeah, well, what internet? What internet? I mean, we were, yeah. <laughs> we're of the generation where you had like the passbook to go to the exactly. Bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, printing that little paper booklet yeah. and dial-up internet, and yeah, it, and you're like, woo, twenty-five cents interest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a very different world back then. So we had to rely on the people who were the experts to us at the time and trusted, which was our our bankers. And I trusted my mom, and I, I still still would. Uh, my mom has passed away, but when she was around, she worked at the bank un- until she got sick and had to retire. But if she was still at the bank nowadays, it would be really, really hard for me to reconcile the way I invest with what she had to sell as a personal banking officer. She had no choice but to push these products, whether she wanted to or not. And I'm not sure how she would have felt had she known about this whole other world of DIY investing. I think she would have, she herself would have had some conflict about that. What's a bank book? <laughs> <laughs> You're such a baby. I was waiting to come out with that zinger. I wonder if I still have one. I'll send you a picture when I get one. <laughs> I think my gra- I think my grandma has. My grandma still has one. Does she? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if they still print on them. So I'll, I'll go on to the next part of our story, which is purchasing our first house. So as I said, we worked hard and saved up a down payment and we scraped it just enough together uh, to buy our first house and pay for all the legal costs. Our first house was what they call a Vancouver special. I don't know if you know of these money mechanic, but <laughs> yeah, they're, they're yeah. a very well-known style of house. They're, they're extremely practical because they're basically big rectangular boxes and typically they have a suite on the bottom floor and upstairs is, you know, 
a whole other living quarters, a, a whole suite basically. So most people tend to live upstairs and then rent out the suite. Or, you know, when your kids are older, then you take over the whole house and then your teenagers can go live downstairs, which uh, is basically what my parents did, ex- except they didn't have tenants. They they actually had a stream, a revolving door of relatives immigrating from Hong Kong <laughs> that stayed in the basement. <laughs> but when we were teenagers, there were no more relatives coming in and they did rent out the suite, which was a uh, a very good, what they call a mortgage helper. And nowadays people call that house hacking. But when I was growing up, it was called a mortgage helper. So uh, that's what we focused on when we were looking for a house. We were looking for a house that had a mortgage helper so that we could either rent it out to tenants or do as one of my husband's uncles did, which was host homestay students. So we bought our house and we immediately renovated it because it was stuck in the 80s <laughs> but we did most <laughs> it was pink carpets and lipstick pink counters that kind of thing so we tore out as much as we could we did it mostly on our own and with a lot of help from family and we repainted changed doorknobs you know did our own plumbing uh, all those kinds of things so we had a crash course in DIYing when we bought this house which I, I think was fantastic it was really good for us to learn and good bonding experience with our parents who taught us a lot of the things that we learned so that was our first house and we stayed in that for 10 years we stayed in that house for 10 years and in in that time we had two kids and we started our house hack and we decided to host students and that that's what helped a lot when I decided to become a stay-at-home mom when our first son was born. Uh, we were on one income, and it was pretty lean in those years because my husband wasn't earning a, a high income at that time. Neither was I, but uh, so losing my income wasn't as huge for us as some might think. My husband made just enough, but uh, we felt more comfortable if we had a little bit more coming in. So we decided to host students and that was enough to pay the bills, put some money in our RSPs and even take a few trips once in a while. So it was definitely a great choice for us and we've continued to host students. Uh, it's been more than a decade now and we still enjoy it. Although now we do it more on a part-time basis just because our lives are busier now, but we think it's something we could easily go back to once my husband reaches FI because it would supplement our income and take down our withdrawal rate. So going back to our 4% assumption episode, it's one of the ways that we intend to lower our 4% withdrawal rate to something under, you know, closer to three and a half to three and a quarter percent. So I think we're about to get to the good part where you discover a man with a mustache. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was very interested in, well, there came a point where I realized that our nest egg was growing and I knew it wasn't optimized. I knew that we should be doing more, but I just didn't have the bandwidth. Our kids were little and I just didn't have the time or energy. But finally, finally, I, I just bit the bullet and said, that's it. I got to look into it. And a part of it was spurred on by my husband's stock options. He works at a video game company and we basically just plunked his money in there without even thinking and just ignored it. And luckily it worked out for us because in those years that we did that, the stock was actually quite low. And then it grew to a point where it was pretty significant. And I realized that I need to learn this stuff or I am going to really make a big mistake here and lose out on the gains that we've had. And so I started looking into it and, you know, everyone we knew had a 
an advisor. They had a guy. And I just never felt right with that. That never sat right with me because I just felt like I couldn't see the value that my friends and family were receiving from these advisors. It it seemed like all they were doing was putting them into products. And I didn't see a whole lot of education going on. And I also didn't like a lot of the messages that they were giving uh, to my friends and family. Like, you know, if you invest in stocks, you skim off the top and then you buy something else. It, It just seemed really messy and convoluted. And to me, there was a lot of conflict of interest because the more they suggested that my family and friends sold things and bought things, the more they made. So how could that possibly be conflict free? Like it didn't make sense to me. And so that was not the path I wanted to choose. But at the same time, I didn't know about DIY investing. I didn't know there was an alternate path. So I started Googling, I started looking up, you know, how, how to invest, how much do you need to retire? And through doing that, I found our hero, (laughs) Mr. Money Mustache. And I couldn't believe it. I was hooked from the moment I found his blog. Even though he's really hardcore, a lot of what he says, it resonated with me. As I said, I grew up in a very mustachian way. So this made complete sense to me. It was natural. And I went right down the fire rabbit hole and and I still don't plan to emerge from that rabbit hole. (laughs) I, I love it. And I think Mr. Money Mustache has been amazing for so many people. But it puts a stressor on your marriage, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it it did. Not so much anymore because my husband has seen the value of it and he's seen the light. But yes, initially it was, it was hard. You know, I, like many people, when you discover fire, you go super hardcore and you're just trying to optimize every single thing in your life. And I actually got to a point where I've said this on my blog, where I would sit in my house and look at the walls and think, I just see dollar bills plastered to the walls thinking, this house is this money pit that we bought. And this equity is all sitting here doing nothing. And I wish, you know, why don't we move to a condo or a townhouse or somewhere else where it's cheaper and, you know, use that money for other things. And why do we have two cars? Why don't you bike to work? You know, there were were all these things. And of course, you know, I talked to my husband about it and he was just like, whoa, this is not for me. (laughs) I like my house. If anything, I would love a bigger house and I love my car and there's no way I'm giving up those things. So yeah, a fire is very confronting if, if you don't approach it the right way with, with the people that you're trying to introduce it to. So yeah, it, you're right, Ryan. It, it can cause some conflict in a marriage when one person discovers it initially. So do you think you would have stayed at work longer had you found fire earlier in the sense that recognizing you could have kept your savings rate jacked right up high and, and get to your fire number that much faster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's something I've thought about many times since discovering fire and knowing, especially recently, I, I wrote a guest post for uh, one of our fellow fire bloggers, uh, Bob at talkend.com. And in that post, I examined the cost of being a stay-at-home parent because I've been a full-time stay-at-home mom for 14 years now. And so it's not as expensive as we thought it would have been, but it's still, it still, it came at a cost and uh, it has definitely slowed our path to fire. So um, thinking back now, I think if I had discovered that before we had kids, before I'd made that change, yeah, I, 
I, I believe I would have stayed at my job longer and most likely delayed kids at least a couple more years because I really did want to be at home with them. I, I can't imagine not having been at home with them when they were little. So I don't think I would have changed my choice to be a stay-at-home mom, but I think I would have delayed having kids so that I could have worked longer. And I also would have worked harder to increase my income in my job or even job hopped so that I could raise how much I, I was earning it, for doing the same amount of work. And same with my husband. Both of us, we're not you know, outgoing, gregarious people. We tend to be very humble and we don't advocate for ourselves as well as we should. My husband has learned to do that. And that is why he's been able to advance in his career in the last few years, because he was tired of um, just sitting back and watching promotions pass him by. And so he decided to advocate for himself at work and be noisier and just really demonstrate to his superiors uh, why his work is valuable and why his experience matters. And it, that has helped a lot to actually advance him in his career. Whereas before he would kind of sit back and, and let things happen as they would, because he was too afraid to toot his own horn and, you know, point out to people when he was doing a good job. And so that's something, you know, if I had discovered fire and continued working, that's something I definitely would have done more of. Um, even though I worked at a nonprofit I may have changed jobs and done something else, maybe worked in the corporate sector so that I could have earned more money. So yeah, definitely, if I discovered FIRE at an earlier stage of our lives, it definitely would have changed the path that we, we would have taken. It's interesting to look at that from your perspective, having the hindsight now. And I think this may be good for the listeners to hear because you know, people maybe now, well, definitely now are finding out about their path to fire, fire much younger than we were uh, at the time and would change those choices. Like you said, you would change, you would have changed your choice and maybe worked for a couple of years longer or put off having kids or so. I think having that hindsight is really valuable and really valuable for the listeners to hear because maybe, you know, you did make the right choice because you had the underlying tenants already in place. You were paying yourself first. You were living below your means. You were saving money. You came to a decision together and it's worked out for you. So I think that sort of proves the model that as long as you, you have the foundations in place, then you make the choice that's the best for your lifestyle. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And that brings up a good point. We're still going to reach fire, even though maybe we made the suboptimal choice of me stopping working and having kids at a younger age but does it matter you know we're we have we're happy we have a good life sure if i put off having kids for a couple of years maybe it would have been harder to have kids so you know i try not to second guess our decisions too much i always live my life in the moment and try not to live with any regrets and and that's partly why our path to fire is slower too because we choose to um, make decisions that are not financially optimal, like buying a third car or getting a dog or traveling as much as we do. But it means a way happier, more fulfilling path to fire. And so what if we made it there two or three years earlier? What's the point if we are miserable the whole time? Yeah, and I, I can resonate with that being just sort of in, in my 40s and, and being able to look back at that. I know probably feel the same way as you do that if I'd found out about fire when I was in my 20s, my life would have taken on a totally different trajectory. But I'm definitely not uh, disappointed or unhappy with the choices that I did make. So I think it's just maybe a, 
I don't think we're old enough to give uh, wise advice yet. We're not sages <laughs> in this by any means, but but being able to look back and reflect on it and and kind of go, yeah, take take that transitional period when you first find fire, with a little bit just have a be able to step away and reflect a little bit and and realize that all these things don't have to, uh, they should be implemented, but implemented with some consideration for uh, life and future as well. Mm-hmm. And. I think that it highlights that the fire community is maturing and growing up, not not just the people in the community, but the community itself, which was quite new, you know, uh, five years ago, it's, it's getting older, and we're all getting more experienced. And I think most of us are realizing that deprivation isn't the way to go, even though that is still what mainstream media wants to focus on, that fire advocates are all about extreme frugality. It really isn't for the majority of us or even any of us. You know, it's been a long time since I've heard a story where someone truly deprived themselves and kept going at it till they reached fire. We've all learned so much from each other, whether it's through, you know, people like Mad Fiantist or, um, there have been plenty of other bloggers and podcasters who have talked about, you know, where they went to too far of an extreme and had, had pulled back and have realized now that it wasn't the right path. And I think all of us are learning along with them and our community is maturing and we're spreading the message that it's okay to reach fire in your 40s or even 50s, especially if it means you'll have a more fulfilling journey to get there. Biggest money mistake growing up. <laughs> Let me think. Well, Growing up, I, I didn't make a lot of money mistakes. I, I think one time I, I bought a boyfriend some stuffed animals and my mom was furious with me. She's like, <laughs> this guy, you don't even know how, you're, how long you're going to be with him. You, you just dropped 60 bucks on some stuffed animals for him. So yeah, that, that was probably my biggest money mistake as you know a kid or a teenager. Um, have you have you done the opportunity cost of that? Yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> affordable. I'm not mistake. that much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not that much of a nerd. <laughs> um, as a young adult, my biggest money mistake was to not take the reins of our investing sooner. Um, if we, if I had learned how to deal with my husband's employee stock options plan, you know, for a few years we freaked out because it went down so we stopped contributing and if we'd continued contributing it was an easy i don't remember how how much it is like six or eight percent that they give you like a premium that the company discounts the stocks to so we would have that's free money and we're stupid we we didn't know any better we didn't take advantage of it for a few years and that was also a few years when the stock was very low and if we'd held on and let it grow like we would have been quite a bit wealthier <laughs> if we'd done that. So I, I regret not learning about investing and taking it on a lot sooner. That's why I'm really excited about the next generation and people who are graduating from high school or university and they're Googling personal finance and they're stumbling across fire instead of these financial institutions, ads and whatnot, right? I mean, if, if you can differentiate a blog that advocates DIY investing and to really think about how efficiently you want to spend your money and for you to actually assess what your values are compared to walking into a branch and loading up on a TFSA and a balanced mutual fund with a 2.3% MER. And how, how, how do you not get like excited about that? And you realize like, oh my gosh, there's this whole generation that's going to 
literally just forego the traditional crap and actually begin to think for themselves in terms of their finances. And Chrissy, that relates exactly to your your story, your point. You didn't do that soon enough. And these next generation, hopefully they will. Hopefully that Google will put the <laughs> the search results for financial independence above all the other crap that's being marketed to them. Yeah. And I am raising my kids to be second generation fire. You know, my older one, he's 14 and he's starting to seriously think about his career choices. And so we talk about the stuff all the time. You know, he loves writing, but I'm like, you know, I've even emailed some journalists and writers and asked them, you know, what is the career trajectory like? And they're like, don't, maybe don't pursue this as a career path, really. But, you know, it's nothing wrong with pursuing writing as a side hustle or a hobby while you have a day job. And, and maybe you'll hit it big and then it can become your full-time job. But, you know, we do talk about things like this, you know, making the wise choice like Millennial Revolution talks about, you know, really looking at the return, the ROI on the education you're going to pay for. So, you know, with my older son, he, as much as he loves writing, he, he has other interests and we will pursue things like programming because he loves that also. And that is a way more lucrative career path. And I told him, you know, you could work at a job that's high paying and work at hard at it for a few years and build up enough of a nest egg where then you can transition to part time and then part time uh, hobby or whatever it is, but it'll give you options. And so it's given me the knowledge now to guide my kids in a way that will lead them down the right path so that they can choose to be FI at a younger age if they want to. Yeah, well, it's still a big uh, education hurdle to get over and then provide it. There's, I agree completely. There's a lot more available out there. It's just uh, just getting people to use it. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps now that the younger generations are so technology-minded and that so many of these, you know, robo-advisors and, you know, uh, and anyone who's in the financial space tends to gravitate more to apps and, you know, well-designed websites to help people, you know, get into their products. And I actually think that's a good thing because it attracts younger people. And in general, these, these newer startups and products, they're, they're doing the right things. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if there isn't too much out there that you're sort of bombarded, you're overwhelmed by choice. And I I could definitely see that uh, people may be influenced or are chop and change. And we kind of know that stay in the path and, and sticking with your plan is the best way to do it. But when you see, new products or new things all the time like oh well maybe i should be in that as well or uh you know so maybe too much transaction cost could potentially be a problem Mm -hmm. with with all these things that are out there now that's true so that's my story (laughs) Um, and here we are 2019 (laughs) exactly and my husband and I continue to be on the fire path and we're excited for what the future can bring. Uh, I'm excited that my kids will have this knowledge the same way I got it, where it's just in their daily lives and they just take it in because we talk about it so much. So I'm excited for where they take their own financial lives in the future. And I'm excited for the future for my husband and I and all the possibilities that reaching fi will give us you know he can continue to work if he wants or he doesn't have to we can have students if we want and we don't have to we we can travel more you know there's so much that we can do once we reach fi and i'm so thankful that there's this community that has helped me to fine tune even though i was mostly on the right path it this community has really helped me to optimize and fine tune our plans and to really get us to a tangible goal so 
I love it. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of this community. I think the community really helps you stay accountable too. For sure. Yeah. So where can people find you for your specific story? For my specific story, you can find me at my blog, which is eatsleepbreathefi.com. And I'm on a lot of social media. I am also on Twitter at ESB underscore FI. And I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I think you just have to search for my blog name and you'll find it there. And I'm on Instagram too, at eatsleepbreathefi. So you can find me on most of the social media and I'm always happy to hear from listeners and readers. So feel free to send me a message on any of those platforms anytime. Chrissy is very responsive. So she's not just blowing hot air when she says that. <laughs> I try to be. I get backlogged sometimes, but I, I always, I, I respond to everybody, even if it takes me a while. Well, I'm really glad to have heard your story. I think it was really inspirational for everybody listening. And it's really inspirational that you're first generation Canadian and to see, uh, the financial success story and that doesn't have to be for your kids 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 to be able to achieve substantial wealth and independence in canada all right well it's great hearing your story chrissy we'll uh we'll catch up with everybody on the next episode thanks for listening folks thank you thanks for listening you can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca do you like what you're hearing help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family Please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca, canadianfire.ca, or eatsleepbreathefi.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'll talk then.